out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the t- turn of the musician, artist, designer and songwriter and vocalist. It is the one and only Robin R. Dalloway, one-time member of the Cravats, also the very things and has got, um, he's had quite a lot of different musical combos throughout his career but his late another latest one is silver lake um there is a link that i'll put on the notes below to the Bandcamp page for you to have a listen because it's very very good but anyway this is the interview you're going to find out so much more about robin his life in music and much much more so after several minutes of interest and but casual chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years the musical awakening robin it's over to you um, I have to think about that for a moment. But the first single I bought was "Fire" by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Oh, um, it's the first one I bought with with my own pocket money uh, in '68, I think that was. Right there um, you go. So it's pretty good. It's a pretty good start. That was a good start. Stuart Lee had the Wombles, so there you go. <laughs> That's oh, a well. terrible start. <laughs> I suppose Mike Bat has got some sort of musical kind of leg- legacy of some description though um yes that's enough of that anyway and did you <laughs> wait, and did you i know he did a sort of song for the conservative party didn't he he, he um, did yeah yeah i remember seeing him <laughs> on a chat show um and he was being very arrogant um ignoring the questions and trying to light a cigar and looking very foolish yes but, um, i know yeah, he should have just memory. he should have sick with i don't know if chris spedding was in the with the wombles um line he was that. He was. He was. I've got a lot of time for Chris Spedding as well. Oh, I know. He's he, yes. I did an interview with Chris, and it was like, oh my god, your CV is a bit frightening, really. Unbelievable. So, um... Absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I think was. the musical awakening though probably came earlier than that. I, I used to. Um, this sounds really improbable, but it's true. Um, my brother was um, a soul and scar DJ in the sixties, um, and I started roading for him when I was about ten. Right. Um, so I used to go and sit in the background of. Just you know, behind behind the the the, um, uh, the decks when when he was uh, doing his stuff, I used to help him carry the gear. But I'd just sit there all night and, and listen to all the all the stuff he was playing, the stacks and Talon Motown and Atlantic singles, and then all the Scar stuff as well. My God, that's extraordinary! Was this all where you all based in Redditch? Redditch. Yeah, that's right. Um, we were living in yeah, yeah nearby. We were living in a, a tiny village called Studley at the time. Right, uh, which is pretty near Redditch. So how did he become so hip to that kind of thing? Because let's say even in the 70s, it was hard to access stuff and information, and but let alone that kind of obscure music. It absolutely was, yeah. Um, I suppose because the kind of connections that we had. Again, this is not sort of name-dropping at all because it's nothing to do with me, but he was friends with the Bonhams, and so he was friends with John Bonham and all that crew. So he kind of got into, you know, soul and blues and... Uh, yeah reggae and stuff really really early on yes and were your parents at all musical or culturally uh, <laughs> inclined my dad was um yeah took uh, uh voice training lessons to sing opera and eventually um was told he couldn't go any further unless he gave up the fags and uh, if this goes out in america i mean to qualify this don't I, and say that he had to give up the cigarettes which he was very very reluctant to do yes. about, yeah 40 embassy a day at the time so Right. And did he did he progress then after that? No, he didn't, which is a real shame because he had an absolutely wonderful voice. Gosh. What was yeah. what what drove him to being into opera so much? 
Um, he's got that kind of voice. I think he's sort of like Mario Lanza. And we used to listen to you know, a lot of music together. We listened to a lot of radio. Um, but I guess it was kind of crooners. You know, stuff like oh, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. Right. We used to, yeah, listen, listen together uh, to, to that stuff. And it's how I got into, um, oh, yeah, stuff like Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the kind of first I'd heard of them. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. So when you got, how did you sort of discover Arthur Brown? How did Arthur come into your life? <laughs> well, much like your experience and many other people's experience of David Bowie, I saw him on top of the pops with a big flaming helmet. Yes. And was captivated. Absolutely yeah. captivated. I, I, would, I suppose I would have been 10 or 11 yeah. at the time. Well, his, his shaky little hips were, were going all over the shop, weren't they? So then, they were. when you, so when you hit 16, was that like the mid 50s, uh, 50s, mid 70s at this stage? <laughs> 73, I was 16. So, and so that's the key, key age, isn't it? For, for They say the stuff you're into when you're 16 is the stuff that lasts for the rest of your life. Yes, I know. Well, Lemmy, Lemmy and David Bowie, who were both born in the same year, I think it was six, four, 47, they both you would say when they got asked that question, you know, it was Little Richard, it was Eddie Cochran, Elvis Presley. And, you know, Lemmy was always that kind of, you know, you can only be that age once and that's the music. And Buddy Holly, you know, he was really big on those artists. But you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what comes up next. It doesn't have that same depth of feeling and and sort of importance yeah. really so. that is very true yeah i was born in 57 so i suppose you know a decade later than them so that the peak for me was 73 um and it was roxy music and, and bowie uh, and i was absolutely obsessed particularly by roxy yes uh, but a lot of the other glam stuff at the time sparks and alice cooper i absolutely adored right blimey. Just a, yeah trek to the up to the town hall in Birmingham to see Roxy Music. I saw them on their first tour and the second one as well. Blimey. But did they have a guy called John Porter who was part of Roxy Music? Yeah, they did. They did, yeah. He was he was actually the second bass player. It was Graham Simpson before that, wasn't it? Who was yeah. um, kind of a Liverpool stalwart. I think he'd been in a number of beat combos, including the big three. Um, yes. But he didn't look the part. He didn't look the part at all. I'm sure he was very competent, but... On the, um, you've probably seen it on the inside of the first Roxy album. There's Graham Simpson there in his cheesecloth shirt, and everybody else looks as if they're from Panic <laughs> you know, in the 25th century. Um, so, yeah, John Porter was drafted in, and he looks much more the part. Yes. And he went on to do, he helped produce that first Smiths record, didn't he, when that was all going terribly wrong and. I think they gave him a bit of money and said, could you just sort this out? Because, frankly, the, the previous person has done a real <laughs> disastrous job. He sort of, he said, I'll give, I can do it over the weekend and try and sort something out. So, um, Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, it's got a story, isn't it? It is quite a story. He has got quite a story about Johnny Marr as well, which was quite funny. Oh, really? So. Yes, which, which kind of, you know, Johnny, they were best mates until he told a story, which he said, he, well, it was true. But Johnny said, no, it wasn't and never spoke to him again. So there you go. You'll have to listen to the John Porter interview. Uh, and then you'll go, oh, yeah. dear, Johnny Marr, what's that about? Yeah. But, um, yes. I'll yes. do that. I'm sensitive <laughs> people that we are. Yeah, it's, uh, these things happen, don't they? Yes. I think <laughs> it's who claims the narrative, isn't it, in this world? It is, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so yeah. when you got to 16, did you leave school? Did you, did you do A-levels at that stage? I did A-levels, but it was an utter waste of time because I failed them. Um, and wanted uh, the only thing I was really interested in is art, uh, doing, you know, uh, going to art school. And I hadn't got the qualifications to go. So I went back for a third year of A-levels and couldn't hack it, really. I, was, I just felt like a, 
in the wrong place, you know, and too old to, to be doing that. So I, I yeah, subsequently dropped out and had a really miserable few months um, of just not not being able to see a way forward. Um, yes. And then it was kind of an odd, uh, an odd thing. I, really improbably, I joined the civil service. I started working at the um, Department, Department of Employment um, as a clerk. Um, and it was a chance just to kind of, uh, I suppose, have a think about things and think about what I wanted to do and uh, sort of set my sights on, on, on going to art school. And that's what I focused on and eventually got an interview for and was eventually accepted. Fantastic. So where was that school or college? Yeah, that was Birmingham Poly. So I went to their um, uh, art and design foundation course at Faisley Street. It was an old shoe factory right in the middle of Birmingham and just a brilliant space. You could do pretty much anything, make films, throw paint around, whatever. You know, it was just a brilliant experience. That was, And that was kind of like year zero for me, really. That was transformative. Yes, absolutely. So when did you pick up a guitar and think, I'm going to I'm going to sort of want to... Um broaden my creative output or outlook I'd, I'd had a guitar for a couple of years but just messed about with it and there was no kind of impetus to do anything so it wasn't really until um i'd heard the first few punk singles um that i thought yeah oh, this is this is this is this is for me and uh we started messing about and uh, not writing material but making up songs to make each other laugh really we used to get together in my in my bedroom at the time on Saturday afternoons, we, we used to go to um, there used to be a supermarket called International Stores, and we used oh to my go god, we had one in a little town. Yeah, I think they were everywhere. It was a big chain. Um, it was a big chain, but bizarrely, it would probably look tiny now. But yeah, looked, that's true. It was like a village sort of shop or, or or some exotic place which had aisles which were like very tiny, tiny. and yeah, that's but, right. But it did seem very exciting. I think there was only one woman one till but it still seemed enormous i mean i was young but um and i was small yeah. but yes the international i know so yeah, you, you might remember they had their own brand of um of alcoholic beverages so they had their own international dry white wine which was like alcoholic vinegar i suppose really and so but it was cheap it was, yes. only, it was under a pound a bottle so we still it, was a bottle or, it was that or blue nun yeah that's right yeah yeah it's true <laughs> we didn't have a lot and... of choice did we? <laughs> no hard times um, it was just it was all simple yeah yeah so that's what we used to do we used to drink the international dry white wine and yeah hit these guitars and um wail yes absolutely so when did you meet the other members of, of the band when did this all come together we all went to the same school we all went to um uh, a very lovely old grammar school um which which, particularly with hindsight, was a fantastic place to go because there was a really strong uh, presence of, of the arts and literature and music there, uh, which we all benefited from. So they were there. The, the two other guys, Shend and Martin, were, were younger than me. They were a year younger. Um, but we were kind of thrown together by punk, I suppose, really. Yes. So your, your first single, that was 78, wasn't it? By then, had you started seeing quite a few punk bands? Yeah, yeah. The I mean, my exposure to it was a bit earlier than that. My my um, yeah um, conversion was on a drive home from from art school. I started going to art school in seventy six September seventy six. Driving home from Birmingham um, to 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 Redditch, I used to listen to the to the Drive Time show. It was Dave Lee Travis, mm. um, and about halfway home, I remember hearing this this unbelievable sound on the radio. I hadn't got a car radio, it was a portable radio, so I was driving with the radio jammed against my ear, trying to work out what it was, and I thought, I'm going to have to pull over. I pulled over, you know, pulled over and uh, 
and listened and we got to the end and Dave Lee Travis said, and that was the damned with New Rose and you can bet we won't be playing that again. <laughs> and I looked to the radio, you madman, what are you thinking of? That's the best thing I've heard for years. And that, that was it. That was the uh, bing, light bulb moment. Well, absolutely. Um, no, that was, I, I think that was the dam that sort of, that changed John Peel, didn't it? It was almost before and then after the, you know, damned all the Ramones. And yes, he yeah, did, he realised that those those Grateful Dead days were gone. Yeah, I think it was the first single, wasn't it? And it was, but it was only a few weeks later. I went into into the Virgin shop in Birmingham and and bought it, and there was nothing else. There was there were no other punk singles out. And I don't think anything appeared until it was probably the start of of the next year of seventy seven when Grip came out and Spiral Scratch. Um, and White Riot, and, and suddenly was there was a clutch of absolutely unbelievable bands to Yes, and I it. guess people there had been people like um, was it Graham Parker and also the Doctors of Madness. Had you had they come on your radar at that stage? They hadn't. I hadn't really heard of that pub rock thing. I guess it was um, maybe it was confined to London. I don't know. I used to I used to listen to to the radio and stuff, but it was I don't know if it had much exposure or not. I did like Eddie and the Hot Rods, who I think yes. were probably in that genre, and Doctor Feelgood. Yes. Um, but it really was it was it was punk that uh, yeah got me got me going got me into it yes yeah, so by 78 you got your first single out wasn't it gordon with situations right. vacant so did you have quite an ethos for the band at this stage was there quite a an idea behind what the cravats were going to be about no not at all no other than we um i suppose we all kind of share the same the same sense of humor um and just had an absolute passion, you know, for these few these few singles that we'd uh, we bought. And we'd uh, you know regularly get together and and play them to death. Yes. Um, and those those the first session, the first you know times we used to get together we were really literally just to make each other laugh. That was the objective. Um, yeah. So then we but then we started yeah we actually started writing songs, proper songs, and um, trying to take ourselves a bit more seriously. Well, that absolutely. And how did Small Wonder come into on on the radar, the, the label that you signed to? Yeah, that's right. Well, we we self produced our first single, Gordon. Um, I think we pressed a thousand copies, and it was done um, in a very haphazard way. We went to Lintone Records in Coventry because it was the only record pressing company we'd ever heard of. Because they used to produce flexi discs for magazines and things that'd be stapled to the cover. Um, and uh, so we did the pressing with them and we did the printing at a local printer's called the Windsor Press, a really sort of old school uh, uh, pressing plant um, that was a uh, uh, printer that, that was, um, yeah, very sympathetic, but uh, completely lacking knowledge about how to make a seven inch single cover. So, <laughs> but yeah, small wonder. We, um, we went to a, a gig at Stratford uh, College, uh, Shend and myself and, and Martin. And John Peel was the, uh, the compare there. We tried to get on the bill for this gig a couple of weeks before. Um, and the, um, I think it was the Students' Union, and said, well, you, you have to pay. You have to pay to be on the bill. I said, that's, that's, you know, well, not only with skins, but that seems really ridiculous. That just seems really immoral. You know, we're not, we're not doing that. Yes. But we went to the gig and, um, and actually told Peel about it. And I think he sort of took pity on us and um, bore us in mind. And we wrote to him, we wrote to him about a week later and sent him a copy of a, of a single and um yeah it all it all can stem from there he played it uh we wrote to small wonder at around the same time because we were they were on on our radar um and uh because they'd heard the peel play um they got in touch and uh and yeah signed us 
Yes, blimey, because they they went on to sign people like Patrick Fitzgerald, didn't they? And um, was it Cockney Rejects as well and Bauhaus? They, they did. They, well, yeah, that's right. They had an, quite an eclectic uh, catalogue. Yeah, people like Frank Sinatra, uh, the first Bauhaus single, um, <laughs> Brass. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of really odd stuff. And what was it like going into the studio at this stage? Had you sort of <laughs> was it was this all, all a new and rather strange experience? It was. We knew absolutely nothing, and of course, you know the arrogance of youth. We weren't willing to kind of ask anybody, but we were looking in um, going to outlaw studios in Birmingham. A, a lot of places wouldn't take punk bands. They would actually actively say we're, we're not interested in punk. It really polarized people. It's quite. It's hard to believe now, and it's hard to. Um, it is. Uh, it's it's quite extraordinary, you know. Uh, yeah. We used to get kind of banned from pubs and all sorts. But yeah, out and all were very friendly and um, quite understanding. We did, a, set, we did a, a session of four tracks with them. It was a bit scrappy. But then the second one yielded Gordon and what became the B-side, which was Situations Vacant. Um, so it had kind of gone up a level. But the, the studio was really good. They had um, quite a good track record. They, the Killjoys, uh, Kevin Rowland's first oh, yes. band, recorded there. Um, and I think they, that was what their, yeah, that was their first single. I think they recorded that. Judas Priest were there as well. I think we, we may have, um, may have used their drum kit, I think maybe for <laughs> rare recording without their knowledge, of course. Um, yes. And but, who did you have produce it then? We, we produced that with the engineers there. Right. So that was it. There you go. Did you, yeah. um, had you started playing live at this stage? Was there much yeah. of a circuit? Yeah, well, no, there wasn't a circuit at all. It was, no, it was really haphazard and dangerous and uh, confrontational. But the first gig, uh, yeah, we was at, um, at the grammar school. It was at Ulster Grammar School. Um, there was a summer concert, which you may have had at, at your school, which happened towards the end of the summer term uh, before everybody broke up for summer. Um, and although I'd left the school a couple of years before, I, we we managed to crowbar the band onto the bill, you know. So it's old boys and you know one current uh, uh, student of the, of the school. So we were on, and it was after all this classical stuff, madrigals, and all that kind of thing. Um, the uh, the headmaster got up on stage and uh, said, "Now we've got some some pop music, you know. Um, if, uh, if parents would, would like to leave, then please feel welcome to." <laughs> Whilst he was talking. I could see out through the windows because because we were on stage by this point. I could see that there were loads and loads of, of, of kids, of youths from, from the town who'd heard a punk band was going to be playing and had turned up. So there was this massive changeover. Lots of parents left and all these kids came in and we did four tracks, tracks and it was absolute chaos. Blimey. But then you chaos. got the bug, I guess, at this stage. We, we did, yeah. Um, it could have gone so horribly wrong, but yeah, we hadn't got a PA until about half an hour before the gig and a, a friend turned up from, uh, who's a DJ, turned up from Derbyshire with this massive rig and we put it up and it was just so loud. It was just, yeah, it was scary. And it, yeah, yeah, just that, um, that I think probably um, got us hooked on static yes. playing. And then John Peel gave you your first session in 79, didn't, didn't he? He did, he did yeah. He so did. who was the producer on that? Was that the famous Dale Griffin? It wasn't. It was before Dale Griffin's time. So um, I don't think we actually had a producer there. It was Mike Robinson. Mike who was Robinson. The engineer, who was an absolute genius and a, a damn good bloke. Uh, he, was, he was absolutely lovely to work with and just... You couldn't ask for too much, you know. We'd, we'd say, Mike, I know this is kind of pushing the boat out a bit, but can we do this? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. 
Amazing. Did you at that stage had you signed for um uh, Small Wonder Records at that point? We did. I think it was for two singles initially. Um, yes. But then we went on pretty soon after that to do to do an album with them, uh, which eventually came out in 1980. Right, because you're. I just was looking actually. I just was curious. Your John Peel sessions have all be are all available on Bandcamp, aren't they? They are. Yeah. Which is yeah. very exciting. Yes, yeah. it's all yeah. there and and more. So when you, what, so had you at that stage left college and and sort of were focusing on, focusing on the band full time? No, I was doing. Um... What was I doing in 1980? Uh, yeah, no, I had actually. I'd just finished. I'd just finished being at, uh, at college. So, yeah, we, we were working at it full time. Well, I say full time. It, we still weren't making any money out of it. So I was working on building sites and we were doing all sorts of stuff to get back. We, we had, um, we borrowed the money to, have, to get a van so we could tour. Uh, and we used to use the van for furniture removals um, and that, that sort of thing. So that's how we scraped a, a living together. Blimey, you've done four John Peel sessions. That we have, yes. Yeah. So we did we cons- yeah, consecutive years, 79, 80, 81, 82, I think. Right through, there you go. So during that exciting period, we had the punk, then post-punk, and then, you know, Thatcher gets in, then we have the Falkland War, <laughs> it, all that. How was that kind of influence in the band at this stage? Because things looked really quite grim, didn't they? We all thought we were going to have a nuclear war as well. So what was it like for the band at this point? And also... There was so much unemployment and and sort of feeling that it was a hopeless cause. It's very true. It's all it was all very grim. Everything was grim. It just felt we like we were sort of oh, really fighting against a, a you know a very kind of difficult situation. There's little you know we were big in sort of rock, rock against racism and played a few of those kind of gigs, but it felt like being at war a lot of the time. Um, you know, some of the tours we we went on and we, we played. Just the 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 the, yeah, the worst venues, the completely wrong venues, um, and so we we'd actually bump into really kind of hostile audiences, and it it really was kind of like well, cross between being evangelists and and being being soldiers, being at war. Did you find did you find you'd found any of your tribe? Because there was that you know interesting kind of anarcho punk scene at that stage, and there was the birth of kind of i suppose the new romantic world and there was goth appearing where did you kind of fit into the scheme of things i think we saw ourselves as pretty separate from all of those things um we didn't really get involved with crass until maybe a year or two later and we did some recording with 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 them and uh yeah a single and an album um but yeah um I don't think we did. We did. I think we just we we picked bits and pieces that we we liked. But I think it was very much our own thing. There seemed to be very very few people playing the same sort of furrow. Um, I guess that we, we thought we were in the same bracket as birthday party and that those sort of bands at the same time. Yes. And had you, because you've got quite an image at that point, haven't you? And you always get labelled as Dada band. Had you sort of really pushed that kind of idea and and some of those kind of. I don't know philosophical moments. Yeah, we had that. That's a, that's a really good question. We'd had that from the start, and that, that was really to do with, I suppose, stemmed from my art school uh, experiences, and I was absolutely entranced by the idea of Dada um, and De Steel and, and Bauhaus. Um, I, I suppose the ideas of of, of um, a total art um, about all art forms being, you know, sort of equally uh, valuable, um, and it's just what you're trying to express rather than the medium. You know, it could be anything. And for me, it happened to be that type of music at the time. So we pursued it with that kind of seriousness, I guess. Yes. Uh, and that, 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 
Yeah, it, it seemed to be entirely appropriate, given the absurdist nature of Dada, to be responding to what us to seem to be a, a very absurd world with an absurd response. Did you get into performance? Did you were you interested in the performing art world? You know, I know we we have in East Anglia this we had this guy called Bruce Lacey who'd been part of various troops and he'd done things in the 60s and then appeared in a Beatles film. Then he used to do these performance pieces at various events. And then and obviously there's quite a lot around the county or county country and also the world. Mm. Did you did, did was that kind of stuff that you quite enjoyed? Because I remember there's always people who were getting slightly naked and having paint thrown at them and these kind of great moments in art. Did you was that something that interested you as well? It was very much so. It wasn't part of our stage performance, but we um yeah, it, it informed a lot of the other stuff that we did. So we, we used to organize happenings um where people would just get together and, and do something under direction and we would photograph it all. And you know, sometimes that would yield artwork for the releases that we were we were making, or sometimes it was just for the sake of doing it. I mean, now, you know, in the age of social media, we would have had lots of lots of content. Um but then there was no outlet for it. But we, we were doing it anyway because it felt important to do. Yes. Well, we, we do. Did we, what was the response like with the first album that came out? Was that generally positive? I think it was, it was reasonably well received. Um, it didn't sell an enormous amount, but it was reasonably well received. You know, that we were lucky enough then to have the support of people like Nick Mercer, um, Panache magazine, and he was writing for... Sounds and enemy, I think, at the same time. Um, so he he used to kind of champion our cause, and obviously Peel played a lot of that album as well. Yes. So what was the what what was it like coming to the second, the follow up album? What was what was the general mood of the band and the direction? I th- oh. The second album, the Colossal Tunes Out, was really a collection of all the material that we recorded just before that as singles uh, or as unreleased tracks but it did form a kind of coherent whole and it was a question of compiling it. We, we, I felt that we kind of got to the end of the line really. I couldn't see how we were going to take it forward. Uh, and I was very pleased with what we'd done. I didn't want it to kind of dissipate and uh, for it to become a lesser, a lesser thing. Um, I was so happy with those tracks. I, I didn't want to produce kind of paler versions of them or, or yeah, worse versions really. So I thought we should kind of leave it at the top, and um, also wanted to work in a different way as well. I, I, I felt like we would benefit from a bit more, um, a bit more freedom um, to be a bit more experimental, and and to be able to pull in different, I guess, different people and different uh, instrumentation, uh, different resources. Yes, and did, how did you come to bump into Penny from Crass? Yeah, that well, that was through Small Wonder because, of course, Small Wonder released their Feeding of the Five Thousand, or at least the first pressing of that. Um, and so, yeah, it was he produced um, he produced your, a, a single we did for Small Wonder called "You're Driving Me," um, and we got on with him really well. And uh, I think he he understood what we were doing and um, and, and and kind of liked it, and, and uh, yeah, was was pleased to work on it. So. Yeah, and he did a great job. Yes, um, I think he loves jazz, actually, doesn't he? That's he? He does, and obviously that's there's more than a bit of that in in our oeuvre. <laughs> yes. So did you have a moment then with the Gravats where you all sat down and said, 
to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end, or that's the end. <laughs> the end. We we no, we didn't, to be to be to be fair. And it was probably a bit brutal at the time. And um I think because most of it was kind of organized by Shen and myself, um, you know, we we did all the sort of the, the creative side. Um we 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 felt it was for us to move on. Uh, really, we we didn't. We we should probably have been more sensitive about it and probably more democratic about the way it happened. But we decided we were going to move on. Um, yes. to, to do something else. There you go. That was yes, and a change. Yes, but it was interesting that the, it's the the two creative people who still keep uh, were still getting on going into the next stage, rather than the <laughs> two creative people who hate each other. Yeah. Which yeah, is right. so. How did what was the ethos with the very things at this stage? What was the reason for you know literally going into another band? There were a couple of phases of it. It's um yeah, it was it was kind of a suggestion by by Penny when we we said we wanted a, a kind of walk work on it on a on a on a bigger canvas, and he was saying, well, what about an all embracing name? Uh, and it was actually his suggestion that the Dada Cravat Laboratories was his idea but it seemed perfect that was just a great idea just this massive umbrella under which we could do everything um and but but within that under that umbrella we, we decided we were going to form a, a band which would have a kind of a floating membership um but would have a particular uh remit and, and the kind of things that we wanted to explore were uh like 60s garage um sounds and psychedelia um and and so that's that's what we did. We formed the very things to kind of do that. Um, yes. And we pretty quickly went into the into the studio to um to play around with that and see where it went. And what and who did you get in as well, apart from obviously you and Shend? Who else was part of the new project? It was just the two of us. We were arrogant enough to think that to start off with we could do everything ourselves. And uh so and we, we did on that first single. So I I drummed on that single. I'm not a drummer, but you know, <laughs> managed to make a, a decent fist of it, I think. And um, although Disney Time would tell you otherwise, he used to critique the single, which is partly why we took him on. He said, oh, well, you come and do a better job then. Um, but yeah, for the first single, it's it's just Shendi myself. That was the gong man, wasn't it? It was the gong man, and the colours are speaking to me, yeah. Yes, that's really. But then one of the great indie songs of the 80s appears, doesn't it? The Bushes Scream while my daddy prunes, <laughs> which was, which I remember the video on, I think the two played it, didn't they? I can't, it, we did see it and we were very, you know, excited by it. And it, there was a lot of kind of interesting and quirky indie singles coming out at this stage, wasn't there? People getting quite experimental. It was a great time for, for music, I think. Um, those early 80s, there was some really, really good post-punk stuff around. We were, I suppose, influenced by, you know, people like Devo and the B-52s and Pear Ubu. Um, we, we were looking to them, really. Uh, but, yeah, and also maybe the cramps a little bit. Um, but we were, you know, we were trying to kind of still just, you know, hone our own sound, really, a particular very thin sound. And so, yeah, we started, I started writing things in late 83. Um, and the Bushy Scream was inspired by a news story, a newspaper story I saw uh, about um, a guy who uh, was fed up with the moles in his garden and he parked the car. It was, I, I can't remember the details. I'd sort of pictured it as being a winter's day because he was in his car. He got the window open, the car running, saw a mole, shot at it. The car lurched into reverse and smashed into his house and there was an enormous fire which engulfed the house. And it just, 
it was just an amazing story. And it all seemed to kind of, you know, ferment in my mind as being a, a perfect kind of allegory, you know, of, of neurosis and, uh, yeah, madness. So yes. um, I used that as the, as the basis for the, for the lyrics for Bush's Scream. That was the classic, wasn't it? Did you, and then you bought the the album came out as well at this stage. So were you on a really creative role for the band um, during '83? Yeah, I, I wrote all of the um, all of that album, um, which I really enjoyed doing. There's, there's, and there's a, I still stand by it. You know, looking back at it, I think it's got a coherence that is um, I'm really proud of. I, I don't listen to things generally immediately after we've done them, and it takes me a long time to go back to them and listen to them with a with a more objective ear. Um, but, you know, having heard that, obviously, uh, quite a few times since, I'm, I'm still very, very pleased with the overall thrust of that album. And it, that was really well received. You know, Peel was was kind of besotted by it, which was which was very flattering. You know, I, I couldn't stop reminding myself that this was the bloke who'd given, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Roxy Music their first BBC sessions, thinking, and he's, he, he likes our stuff. He likes it, there's, yes. There's, there's a great I, quote from him about... Um, I, they, they used to play, play that album to death, but playing, you know, playing whatever it was, a track off it, he, he said something like, um, that's the very things, um, showing how to make a crushing album for less than the cost of, you know, less less money than some bands put up their noses every every week. <laughs> yeah, well, it was. I think it was kind of a fascinating time because there were... I think, you know, I didn't realise when I was doing this that there were quite so many bands of the 80s. And in a very simplistic narrative, I think there was such a lot of unemployment that that there wasn't that much idea of, like, any future and no career. And, you know, it's like, well, what's the point? There really is not much going on. So there was a big amount of unemployment and job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. And, you know, people were just kind of faffing about thinking, well, I'll just kill all time be in a band or do something with your enterprise allowance scheme for a year and basically, you know, just go to the pub for happy hour and get a bit drunk and have a nice time, really. And sort you're, of put down. Right. And that that was kind of a massive bit. But there were bands like, I don't know, Big Flame, I remember. And they just they just wanted to do one album, have a bit of a nice time, mess about a bit. They couldn't really play their instruments, but they made a noise. But I think we had the gatekeepers during that period, didn't we? We had obviously Peel was enormous. And then we had the three weekly music papers. And then there was all these little venues in every town and city that would put on an indie night, alternative night. And I think that kind of helped people at least feel like you weren't just playing to your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to come and see you, really. so You're um, absolutely right. There was a big change at that time because that's when venues who, I guess, promoters, you know, those venues understood that music and that's, that's, that's when it got a home. Um, and that's when we we started, you know, kind of gigging more uh, as, as as the very things. But you know, it had been tough as as the cravat. So even as late as I don't know, eighty one, eighty two, there weren't decent venues. There weren't decent small venues for bands. And were you impressed or not impressed, but kind of excited with the other bands coming out? Because there was Alien Sex Fiend, weren't they? And they they used to write great. They used to have great titles. And your follow up single, Mummy, You're a Wreck, kind of reminded me a bit of like you're doing doing time in a twilight zone oh no can you <laughs> yeah. remember that those bands could could have really good titles couldn't they that's been it's that true it's true i used to work on those quite quite um yeah quite, quite hard to try and get something that would be um could be intriguing um yeah mummy you're a wreck yeah uh yeah that's that was that was the it was supposed to be kind of a companion single to um the bush's screen uh, yes um but i and I actually, actually had some sort of really 
serious um, <clears throat> serious underpinnings. Um, it was about alcoholism. Uh, in excuse me. <coughs> alcoholism in families um and specifically my mum um and it wasn't kind of running a down or anything but it kind of was just channeling uh that and lots of kind of episodes that that, that happened for uh, creative ends yes god so that was kind of a little bit of a biographic number it was but it i, I guess all this stuff has to be doesn't it you know if it's got the integrity it has to be stuff that you've experienced or you know have an understanding of or have a have some point to make Yes, absolutely. You know what, you, you're dead right about. I was talking to um, Stephen Burrows, the uh, bass player for, and also the Trees. Who I think you you know. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, do something with Simon, maybe. Yes, it was Simon. Yes, who's a very good friend of mine. Um, yeah, I was talking to Stephen only yesterday, and we were we were um, uh, reminiscing about the uh, the the manpower services commission schemes that there were in the early eighties where you get a half decent wage to go and do something of social use, you know. And I, I went to work for Warwickshire Museum as an archaeological illustrator. Um, but it was brilliant just to have that as, a, as an income whilst you were pursuing whatever your interests were, as you say, messing about with, with music or film or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was just fantastic. I mean, yeah. well, it is interesting because there was a lot. I have to confess, there were a lot of bands that I completely missed the first time in the eighties. Mainly because it was difficult to access stuff. You know, I sound like I'm pleading here, aren't I? My my confession in court. <laughs> but you know, if you you know, you could sometimes read about a band and think, oh, that sounds great, but actually, I I can't actually hear it, and and I can't even go to a record shop and buy it because you can sometimes say, have you got the blah blah, and they'll just look at you and go, we don't have that, and you think, fair enough. You know, it's it. There was nothing really to help you sometimes, and then another record will come along, and you go, "Oh, this is great! I've got this this new album." And then you know, I mean, it was always a big number. Three ninety nine for an album was was a bit of a you know investment, and there was all these you know TDK D ninety John Peel shows that you'd scribble. If there was a good track on it, you go, "Oh, that was yeah. a good track." Yeah, labeling right. was terrible, but you would have to then try and find this one song, and yeah. you you know you wouldn't we wouldn't always be able to find the record, especially if it was an American import or from. Australia yeah. so you know you just had to try and make these notes so it was difficult so yeah there were all these other bands that came along like the sound and um yeah and 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 also the trees which was another great band and yeah I've just been kind of enjoying an Easter house all you know I missed all those you know I shouldn't say that on air but I did miss them all <laughs> and then you hear them later and you think that's an amazing time but the very things obviously were you got that press didn't you with John Peel and also with the tube which suddenly you know because that was a brilliant program it just had the most quirky bizarre two two three hours of just random stuff and I guess they just brilliant. had to fill up you know all this time every week and and you know they just had to put on Odd performance arts poets, you know. I always remember Rick Mail being very drunk and then just puking up, and yeah. then thinking that wasn't even acting. That was really him just getting yeah, very yeah. drunk. And um, we loved it, the, didn't we? We did. We did. The, the timing of it was brilliant. It used to be on a Friday, didn't it? At tea time, it kind of started at five thirty. Yes, and it just kind of ramped up. I think it was five thirty till seven thirty, but it was a brilliant slot because it was kind of before you went out for the evening. You know, so just kind of an opportunity to see all that stuff and then go out and revel yourself. You know, it was just, it was wonderful. And it was great to be part of it. We were very, very lucky. And of course, that's really what, what how um, Bush's Scream took off in a, in a kind of a bigger way is that we were, we sent, um, it would have been a cassette. We sent <laughs> a cassette of the album to uh, Chris Phipps, who was the commissioning editor for the Tube. 
Um, and he got back to us and said um, something like, uh, I, I was listening to, um, to, to the album uh, whilst I was driving to Newcastle um, and driving across the moors, I was listening to Information, which is one of the kind of more atmospheric tracks from, from the Bush's Scream album, uh, kind of a slower pace with lots of samples and stuff in it, lots of voices. Um, and he said it made the hairs on my neck stand up. So um, would you like to, to, to do something with the tube? <laughs> yes, yes, we would. Oh, uh, did they give you £10,000 to make a video? They didn't give us any money at all, but they but they made the video. Time Tees made the video, and it is uh, reputedly still the most expensive film they shot uh, for the tube. Um, and it was all shot on the film. It wasn't video. It was all on, uh, on film, 16-millimeter yes. film. I just remember that story about that video. Anyway, there you go. But then, so you, your sound gets very different now, doesn't it? The next phase of the band, it gets a lot sharper, doesn't it? What happens at this point? In about 85 or 86, we went back into the studio to record another tranche of material um, and included that was Mummy of a Wreck, which became a single. But also as part of that, we recorded a newer track I'd written called uh, This Is Motortown. Um, and it was kind of about uh, about the way that um, urban life had kind of become uh, very degraded, you know, by the car-centric design uh, that a lot of sixties cities had, and Birmingham being a case in point. So there was a kind of um, you know tongue-in-cheek um, idea that um, you know Birmingham was a bit like Detroit, um, uh, but it wasn't because it was rubbish. Um, but the both environments had been really degraded, you know, by by the car, and it was about kind of people trying to live, you know, creative lives, and then you know the uh, loves and losses against that kind of background. Um, and it turned out really well. We we demoed it, and I, I just really really loved it, and thought I'm going to write some more in this vein because this is a whole uh, seam of material, you know, that, that I can I can write about. Um, and that's kind of what happened. We um, were friends with uh, Derek Burkett of Flux of Pink Indians, who'd got together a kind of production company um, called Smuff and Shawman. Um, and they were they were they wanted to kind of you know uh, produce as sophisticated material as any any other pop music out there. Uh, and we we kind of wanted to tap into that and. Um, so we worked with them on 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 Motortown on recording it properly, um, which turned out really really well, and we released that on our on our own new uh, DCL Electric uh, label. And it was it was it was a it was a big shift in sound for us because yes. suddenly it was it sounded like other pop music. No, it didn't sound like other pop music, but it, it was sonically it, it was as sophisticated. Uh, and as powerful as other pop music, and that was really exciting. Yes, because you had a, it was an amazing rhythm section, wasn't it? Robin on drums, it was it was kind of very tight. It was very there was no there was no flap, isn't there on that? Absolutely, track. absolutely, and that that was that was the kind of intention. That's that's the kind of um, I don't know that sort of sixties aesthetic we brought to it, and make it very sharp and very incisive and energetic and. Just making sure it didn't get kind of swamped by you know whatever production there was. Um, yes. and, and Robin was key to that. We uh, he was he was yeah he, he was really really creative. We we pointed him in a particular direction. I remember when we uh, headhunted him. He was fifteen. He was playing for um, uh, a, a psychedelic band, and we saw him in a pub in Redditch. And 
yeah, he was, he got, you know, clearly got a lot of talent. Um, and we sort of poached him and pointed him in the direction of uh, Buddy Rich and uh, Keith Moon. And uh, he never looked back. Um, nice. <laughs> so had you performed on the tube at that stage, you know, live? Because I do remember a performance and there was, you know, the band were really sharp. But the Shend looked very mean and moody and quite so, you know, like you would be, you know, you wouldn't trust him to, I don't know, the, if you were away, you wouldn't give him the keys to your house to sort of feed the cats, would you? He, he had a little bit of a sinister look to him, didn't he? A bit of a... He, he, he did, yeah. Yeah, and I think still trades on that uh, these days with his, uh, yeah, his, his, his work on, on for advertising and so forth. Um, yeah, no, it was a little bit later than that. Um, it was after we'd recorded. We decided, yeah, One Little Indian uh, made us an offer that we couldn't refuse. We wanted to carry on using that production team and they were sort of getting one little Indian off the ground and wanted us to kind of be part of that. Um, so we shelved DCL Electric Recordings and threw our lot in with them, which means we got access to uh, the studios and the production team that produced Motortown. This is Motortown. Yes. Uh, so we, we did, uh, I, by then, I'd written another four or five tracks and we went in to do those as a block of material. Um, and it was, I think, after that, but before maybe the album came out, um, that we did the tube, we did the live thing on the tube. Right. Because Let's Go Out, again, that's, that's, that marries up very nicely to Motortown, doesn't it? We, again, what was the inspiration for that boom, this particular track? As I was mentioning earlier on about the um, kind of just trying to imagine, well, I didn't have to imagine. I'd spent a lot of time, you know, in Birmingham with, with girlfriends and you know at college and I used to work there as well at one time I was working in a record shop um it was really about living your life against the backdrop of all that kind of grime and just degraded urban um degraded urban city you know it was, it was pretty grim a lot of the time it's pretty nice actually now you know it's quite yes it's quite swanky now but at the time it was it was awful in the 80s it was really really uh nasty um, okay because there was, so the... it was about you know, still having fun going to parties and stuff and going to bars and just making the best of it and yeah coming from east anglia though birmingham did seem to have a very vibrant sort of music scene because because you probably saw king rocker and the world of robert lloyd and the nightingales and you know those is it barbarellas the nightclubs <laughs> that we and and you know members of duran duran hanging out with Stephen duffy from the lilac times and then you had you know terry and jerry and then you had um, you know, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it. Vindaloo yeah. Records, Stuart Lee. It all, it seemed pretty good to me stuck in the East Anglian landscape. It was, it was, it was certainly a very vibrant place and the really good venues. Yeah, there was, the Barb Rose was the key venue and um, it was tiny. It was absolutely tiny, but yeah, we I saw the dam there and the clash and pretty much every, anybody going, anybody who's anybody played Barbarella's. Um, and there was another night called, called Rebecca's, um, it was kind of sister club. And then a bigger venue, the top rank suite, which is where bands got when they got a little bit bigger. So, um, yeah, was, you know, oh, I just remember going to see Iggy Pop there and just being absolutely blown away. But it was yes. good, yeah, there were it, there was a good good music scene and good bands, really really good bands. Because on your album, you know, the one which is um, Motortown, yeah, that's pretty. Is that produced with the guy from Gentle Giant, Ray <laughs> Solman? <laughs> You're good. You know stuff. Yeah, because I did an interview with a guy from um, Shelly Ann Orphan, I think, and he, or somebody, he did a lot of indie bands. No, it was A.R. Kane. Yeah, hey. yeah, yeah. And he said to yeah. me, it was really sweet because his wife would pop her head around and go, oh, this sounds quite nice, dear. 
I think the wife. I don't know if if that's completely true, but it was some kind of. It sounded quite a nice little setup. So did did he produce that whole album? Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Brian Pugsley engineering, Um, Ray is an absolute genius. He's he's been working he's been working music for so long. He started when he was fifteen or sixteen with Simon Dupree and the Big Sound, Um, Kites. Ray wrote Kites, um, which is which a cracking song. Weird, weird, weird song, but brilliant. Um, and uh, yeah, made entire sense, you know, him going on to Gentle Giant later. But he's just so knowledgeable uh, and just such a generous person, uh, you know, with his time and with, with information. So I learned more um, than I ever did before or since working with, with, with Ray um, about all sorts of things, keyboard playing, guitar playing. Every, I, there's, there isn't a day goes past without I employ some technique that Ray taught me. Right. Uh, yeah, it was just a brilliant mentoring process, and, so, and he's just got fantastic ears as well. He knows what's what. Well, amazing. Did so? Where? What studio did you go to for for that you know release? Yeah, we used Berry Street, um, which is right in the East End. I'm not sure if it's still there or not, but uh, we, <laughs> because of our lowly status at the time, we were using dead time. So I think you know people like Bronsky Beat were had the daytime shift. They were using you know the sensible times of day, uh, and they they'd pack up and leave at uh, tea time. And to do whatever they wanted to do, and we'd go in and be spend the night there. Yes, at cheap rates. For cheap rates, yeah. Cheap yeah. Rates. We love those <laughs> bands who come in at cheap rate times. Uh, <laughs> so, so everybody at this stage loves to do a cover version of uh, "There's a Ghost in My House." I can't remember when did Marky Smith do his. <laughs> this is a this is a moot point. Um, <laughs> well, it's it's a bit odd. Um, how can I t- diplomatically describe it? We we were invited to play the Rough Trade Christmas Party um, that year, and I think it was it was certainly the first time we played as a Ghost in the House live. And Mark Smith may have been there, right, uh, with the rest of the fall. So it may be that he thought that's a good idea. But you know, I'm not saying for definite. But no, okay, because I mean, obviously, this is now decades, and I I just kind of remember seeing you know the video and and thinking, God, did everyone decide to cover that song? But that was obviously because. You, they they saw you play it, didn't they? And thought, let's do that. I think I think so. I think so. I do like their version, but yeah, I prefer ours. Yes. <laughs> so was the I mean the eighties was kind of a fascinating time, and as you probably gather in more ways than one because you were part of it. You know, there's normally about a five year narrative, isn't there? There's the twelve month honeymoon period, getting together, trying to make something, get a single, and in those days, you know, John Peel, the John Peel session, bingo. You know, it's like, and then a few, you know, the tour van, well, the bus, actually, not tour van. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the little venues around the place. And then the first album, second album. And then, you know, around five years, it's like, oh, things are creaking, aren't they? Everyone's had a bit, had enough. And I didn't realise that the, that not only does the dynamic of the band struggle, but there's like also an amazing lack of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all those things take the toll. Fatigue does creep in, you know. We've, yes. We've done, Got a few European tours by then as well, um, which I, I found quite tiring. Um, yeah, and they, they, yeah, those the, the idiosyncrasies that people have, you know, uh, that grow to be quite irritating when you're on tour. You know, even people you love. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, God, you know, basically they're your work colleagues. Did and also you get that kind of next wave of 16, 18 year olds come along, and they're like, oh, I want a new band to discover. I don't want someone who's been around and suddenly telling you how neurotic they've become and how they find it all too much. You want somebody who's there and 
young and just discovering it for the first time. And also the 80s in a very rough, you know, there was like 83 to 87 was a kind of golden period for indie pop. It was also the years of the Smiths. And then they split up and then ecstasy comes along and then there's this, okay, dance then the seattle grunge and shoegazing and you know it kind of gets very muddy during that period and obviously for a lot of bands i've interviewed they just went you know i don't think anyone really cares about us anymore really yeah, <laughs> yeah it was there was a big shift there was a big shift in um well the whole load of things but yeah uh, disney and i really got into 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 clubbing and into house music um we kind of appeared around that time. Um, so we listened to Ten City and Inner City and, and all that sort of thing. And um, that kind of seemed a bit incompatible with what yes. we can do. Especially and Inner was, City. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of hard to take it forward, you know. Um, yes. And it's, it's in the format that it was in then. So, yeah. And how did, and so was there a, a definite moment where that was it with the band? There wasn't it kind of petered out. Um, and it's really unfortunate. And I, I'm still not really entirely sure what, what happened. I didn't sort of engineer it, but it did kind of drop to bits. I spent a lot of time in the studio on my own. Um, the, the, the other guys you know, weren't there all the time. So I was there a lot on my on my own. Um, and yeah, a number of things happened. There was, there was actually a second block of tracks that had only been demoed, which were slated for the Motortown album. Um, and we didn't get didn't get to record them, and I was really really disappointed about that. But we kind of put all of our eggs into into one basket, and no one no one kind of discussed this. But it, it seems to me, with hindsight, that it was really because there wasn't a massive commercial success from either "This Is Motown" or "Let's Go Out," which was expected, um, which would have kind of bankrolled, you know, the, the expensive recording and production um, that we'd enjoyed up to that point. Yes. So um, we sensed, I think, just some not disinterest exactly, but there was certainly a you know lack of um, lack of support, maybe. Yes. Was, yeah. Disappointing not 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 to have been able to. I um, guess. I mean, did on. you ever have a manager? We'd had a manager, but didn't have one at that point. Um, right. Yeah, we we had a management. And what was the deal with One bad. Little Indian? Was that just one album? It was well. It wasn't. It was. It was kind of yeah. Um, I think it was for the one single actually. So yeah, there, there wasn't anything drawn up until the album was ready to go. So there was. We were not on a. We weren't on a. You know, so many albums deal. It was on a release by release basis. Right. God damn. Does yeah. that mean? Because I'm confused. So you were with One Little Indian, but then it's being bought by Fire Records. No. Um, Again, because it was on a on a kind of gentleman's agreement basis, we were able to kind of take the masters away, and eventually they, yeah, we we ended up at fire. This is ten years later though, um, nineteen ninety three, and it was just a matter of making this the stuff available um, and tidying it up. You know, a lot of loose ends. Some stuff hadn't been released at all. Some stuff had been released in the wrong place. There were versions of things I really wanted to get out. So I put a lot of time, the best time of the year, into um, Getting it would turn out to be three albums. It was it was the it was uh, Bush's Green, um, Motown, and then there was the stuff that occupied that middle ground. There was Mummy or a Wreck and, and a lot of kind of other material surrounding it. Yes, and it sort of made sense to kind of pull that together and uh, release that as, a, as an album as well. So three albums basically we did with Fire. Right there you go. That's done. You haven't even yeah. had a cherry red 
collection compilation have you which they love doing those things that they the they do yeah and they they bought the rights to all the all the cravat stuff which is um interesting all the small wonder material oh have they have so have they done their kind of five cd box set with booklet or is that in the pipeline i don't know i don't know what's happening they've certainly cherry picked tracks and put them on those oh i wonder if we've got one around somewhere maybe not but you know the um year by year sort of thing like in 1970 this was 1979 and you know there's i don't know yes. on there and all sorts of stuff they've, 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 yes i think every month there's another they've yeah. got this month is leads 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 and there's a yes a four yeah. cd box set and they've done various ones they're good you know they're very good so in that because i know i don't know if you ever read luke haynes book on where he talks about his relationship with fire in the book and it's quite sort of you know he talks about i don't know sort of wanting to do unpleasant things to people there. Did you, was your relationship with fire generally okay? Uh, it, it was, but I suppose I had a different relationship with them. I used to, um, I used to do some artwork for them as well, uh, for, for, for releases. So I had a kind of dual role. Um, I was freelancing, um, earning a bit of money doing uh, record sleeve design. Uh, so this is kind of a, you know, the practical offshoot of my art school training. Yes. How to, uh, graphic design and so yeah i was doing a bit for, for fire so i did you know some, a couple of pulp albums and uh, yeah some of that sort oh of stuff. yes pulp were on fire records weren't they and they were staff with yeah yeah i don't think they had very good things to say about fire eventually as well but, i know um, and then they yeah. i think they bankrolled the king rocker film so apparently it's all good stuff now so everyone likes yeah, them yeah yeah but um luke yeah. luke haynes has got quite an amusing book out about i don't know i must i must read that i'll be interested to read that yeah i'll, I'll check that out it's so good but um in so many places but then you get lots of john peel festive 50s don't you which is always essential and you get that kind of kudos which is brilliant but then after that what happens to you as does music then take a bit of a uh i don't know a sidestep or i don't know put it, put did, in the... it did yeah it didn't it didn't immediately um Disney and I um, started a new project called Hit the Roof, um, which was kind of in, in response to, you know, our love of, of house music and of, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, electronic dance music. It was the start of all that stuff. Yes. And it's, it's, it's um, I've never forced these things. I just end up falling in love with, with new stuff. Um, and yeah, I've, I've followed up in love with Acid House and S Express and yeah, all, all that kind of thing. And that kind of informed where we went next and we did a single we did a cover version of edwin styles contact oh that's um, a classic i even went and bought the seven inch single to contact did you really and, uh, yes i wow. did i mean i thought edwin and he did another song called 25 miles which was just amazing and that's a brilliant song and the tramps um, disco inferno and yeah 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 was it bohemian yeah. something oh there was a song not Bohemian Rhapsody. There was another one of those classic stomping songs. But I did, because of being obsessed with John Peel, basically anything he played, I vaguely loved. Well, not vaguely. I, you know, I loved the Bundu Boys. I loved Gregory Isaac. Yeah, yeah. Just Pablo. Yeah. And then all, all that house stuff, a guy called Gerald. Then he started yeah. playing the Orb and Orbital. And, you know, and I remember him playing, is it Frankie Knuckles, um, Love yeah. Don't Turn Around. I do remember yeah. just going, my God, did you just hear John Peel play that the other night? And obviously... Yeah. No one did because I didn't know that many people who listened to John Peel. But it was just, <laughs> it was just like everything that he, you know, he just found. And then he got into Happy ha Hardcore, which I thought was hilarious. And there were just some brilliant songs he used to play on Happy Hardcore. 
every you know like he did they just were mental songs absolutely yeah mad. but, but that's um, why yeah. it's just that's why it's such a genius and so it's so brilliant at his job because I, I suppose a bit like you know the way I've just described for myself. He, he just did. He just fell in love with new, with with new stuff. Yes. Well, John Waters said that his producer John Waters said that if John Peel ever got to puberty, we'd be in trouble. And I think that kind <laughs> of he did seem to be able not to have that. This is mine. I'm going to hit pause, and just this is going to be the music. And now I'm going to be an old person who just goes. It's not as good as it used to be. Kind of vibe. I've never you understood know. that. I've never ever ever understood that. No, and that's, but... that's that's kind of I, I I suppose determined kind of the path I've I've taken um, you know no. since since those days. But on Edwin Starr, did you know Edwin Starr was living in before he was untimely demise? Lived in Worcester, uh, which is where I live now. Huh? I went mm. to see him at a, at a nightclub called uh, Marilyn's in in Worcester. Excellent. Um, yeah, it was it was just. Brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. So we were there and it got to about 11 o'clock and he hadn't turned up or didn't appear to be there. And I just remember I had my back to the stage and uh, the DJ was playing Rick Astley, whenever you need somebody. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there was another voice over the top. I thought, that's Edwin Starr. And turned around and there he was singing this Rick Astley song, you know, just toasting over the top of it. Wow, that is brilliant. That is, oh, that is, that is fantastic. I do. The, tracks, yes. the track stopped and he just started a war, um, which is yeah, one of my favourite tracks. Well, it's well. interesting because John Peel used to play these kind of amazing soul records from the Kent record label. From yeah. like, and uh, like, uh, I don't know, he used to, uh, yeah, I just, because um, I bought a couple of Standing for Love was one of these collections, which, it's just absolutely amazing. And Aaron Neville, I remember him playing Earth Angel and yeah. had to go and buy the Earth Angel album. And <laughs> so it was all these kind of things that he would just pop in. That you thought, I've not heard that before. And I can't remember where I got that Edwin Starr contact. But I do, you know, we made eye-to-eye contact. It was just an amazing. But then, you know, I remember going to see Gino Washington a lot during that period as well and just really thinking Gino was good. But I do, I, I do love the Marvin Gaye story because I think when he got clear, cleaned up during the early eighties, he lived in was it Belgium, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, yeah, it was well, it was it Belgium, Bruges yeah, or somewhere like yeah. that, and he, yeah, he managed yeah. to sort of get himself sort of live with some sort of humble kind of family and right. completely sorted himself out. And um, yeah. yes, unfortunately, went back to his parents or his dad. Yeah, it didn't end well, did it? It didn't end um, well at all. <laughs> So then as you, as we navigated through the 90s, so did you stay with, you know, dance music and, you know, the Acid House and... Um... I did, but as a consumer. So I was, I was clubbing during that time. I, I took a year off. Well, I didn't know it was going to be a year off. I just, I, I really had enough of um, of making music and all, all the kind of machinations and all the politics and manoeuvring and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm not... Um, uh, yeah, I'm not a great ligger, so I, I, don't, I don't do that kind of sh- you know, schmoozing thing well. So it was quite a relief to take a year off and just go clubbing, um, which is what I did. Yes. Um, and then, but uh, towards the end of that time, um, yeah, I, I, it, it's the way I guess my mind works. I was just writing songs and thinking I should probably start again. Uh, and I did at a fairly low level, just got a couple of mates and more or less as we had done at the start, started making making music and doing a few gigs. What was your next gig then? Or not gig, um, band? Band then was called Viva Rama. Um, it went through a few names before it got to that, but it ended, ended up being kind of a, a seven-piece and it was really unwieldy, but it was, re- oh, well, I thought it was really interesting. Um, 
we had Svorn Arm, uh, you know, the uh, sax player from the from the cravats um, in making noises and, and playing sax. Uh, two girl singers, um, a, a, a female drummer, um, a guy I still work with called Tony Sherrard uh, from a band called Lucy Show. Um, oh my the, God, the Lucy Show is amazing. Yeah, a yeah. thousand, a million things is one of those, again, I didn't hear them the first time, but now I've heard them again. It's like, or heard them and I thought, oh my God, how did we miss this? But it was stunning. I think John uh, Leckie produced his out there album, actually. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Yeah. And and and, and oddly, the, the original guitarist from the cravat. So those kind of people I knew that we and we kind of pulled together and but it was like herding cats, you know, it was just uh, really unwieldy, very undisciplined. And I wasn't inclined to kind of organize people in in the way that maybe I had done before. Um, so, uh, but despite all that, we we did quite a few gigs. We we got onto the word. Um, oh, we, what? And what were you? Produced... And what were you called at this stage? Yeah, it was still Viva Armour. So we we had probably seven or eight years of of, of, of doing that. Um, yeah, this is the single we put out. Uh, Let's talk about love. The the, the video um, was awarded best music video at the Birmingham Film and TV Awards. Uh, in 92 i think it was um so it's not like we you know we the, the, the we got something <laughs> yes we didn't, we didn't capitalize on it we, we were just you know just messing about really did did brit pop sort of slightly encourage you back again yeah it did it did that whole scene i thought was, was really good um yeah there was some energy back in it wasn't there Yes, I wasn't enamoured greatly of any of the bands in particular. I think I like them better in in, in retrospect. Um, but it was good to have that kind of energy there. Yes, I like the concept more than reality, really. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I I felt a bit like John Waters sometimes. I, I I sort of would have that ability sometimes. I like the idea of this more than the, you know, the reality. But I think it's worth. It's still worth you know being played, and it's still worth being out there. So yeah, definitely. I don't know. So when did your latest adventure start, which is this one, which is Silver Lake? Silver Lake. Lake. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so there's a little bit of a, an overlap. So at the end of Viva Arm, which is about the end of the century, um, we again slimmed it down. Three of us who had been in Viva Armour got really into that kind of Bristol sound, hip-hop and trip-hop Um and again, electronic dance music. There seemed to be a new wave of that around uh, jungle and uh, drum and bass. Yes. Um, and we, we, yeah, we've kind of fell in love with that, and um, yeah, kind of reflected a bit of that. It wasn't. We didn't pick it up wholesale. You know, it was still our own thing, hopefully. Um, yeah. But kind of reflecting those those new influences. Yeah, because I've been playing these that your. Um... Your releases, which are all on Bandcamp. Yeah, so Sally Ann Parker, how did you come across her? Yeah, uh, we'd not known her for, for, for a long time. She's actually from, from Studley, the village I used to live in. Um, though we bumped into each other a couple of times, but then she got into clubbing. So I met her uh, clubbing, basically, and, and Tony as well. Um, and then, yeah, we, we kind of deliberately went and, and headhunted Tony Sherrard. Uh, but yeah, Sally Ann Parker, yeah, clubbing. Yes, blimey. <laughs> So is it the case then? This is a sort of an ongoing band that you've got. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is still now. We still work on that now. It's it's a very slow pace, but it's it seems to be you know pretty well received. We're we're very lucky. We get um, you know um, quite quite uh, quite a lot of yeah nice plaudits and 
nice reviews and things. And we were, it's really weird at my age, you know, getting picked up by BBC introducing is just bizarre. <laughs> it's really, really odd. You know, we, we asked to play there um, Lake Fest, uh, the, the BBC introducing stage there, which is in, in Malvern, East yes. Newcastle. Uh, and of course, it's, you know, it's all kind of, you know, bands, 17 year old bands, and there's me in my 60s. And it's, it's just, are you sure you got the right person, guys? But it, it went down really well, and, and subsequently, people said, you know, it was, it was the, the, the best, uh, the best thing they, they'd had on. And that's, that was really, which is always gratifying. Good. Yeah, yeah. And is it the case because the cravats are still out there doing bits and pieces, aren't they? There's a new album. Is it the case that it's you, you know, completely kind of separated from all that kind of world and the shend? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He, he's gone off and, and, and fronted that, and in a kind of rather symmetrical way there's no evidence of this thus far but um i've been working with as, as the very things um and that that work has uh, comprised uh, um recording a new album so this is a bit of a um uh yeah this is, this is the first time i've mentioned it to anybody really um so <laughs> there, there, there will be a new very things album next year oh blimey but you yes so it's a scoop it's a it's a, it is a scoop, so it's exciting. So the very things, but that hasn't you haven't been alive with the very things until recently. Yeah, it's it's it has. It's just been a very very long process. It's it's been happening over, I suppose, the last ten years, which sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it has been that long. It's because you know we've had to record it kind of in the cracks between other things, between other activities, between other bands. Pandemic. Um, yeah, the pandemic just took a massive chunk out of it. I broke my arm uh, mm. as well, so that that uh, that kind of held things up for for quite a long time. Um, and what's but, and what's the uh, lineup of this? The 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 um, combos, John Peel used main, to say. Yeah, that's right. He did, didn't he? Yeah, Sorry about that. It's 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 mainly myself and, and Tony Sherrard. Um, right, but it but it does include uh, Busy Time and Stephen Burrows, who was the live bass player with the very things. Uh, Shin played all the original bass on the recordings, of course, but um, yeah, Stephen Stephen played all the live stuff. And who's doing vocals? Me. And you're doing the vocals. This is yeah. very so. What, you've got the material recorded, and is it just ready to be taken and processed? It is. Yeah, it's actually going off tomorrow to be mastered, and then we're looking at a, a release in spring next year. Blimey! And who's produced it? Uh, we've produced it. You've produced it's, it. Self-produced it. Yeah, yeah. Blimey! Yeah. And, and is it? Is... And there are videos for it as well. So it's it's much in the spirit of of you know previous everything stuff, and it's all been written in the same kind of way, using the same techniques, and uh, so I've really really channeled that. And it's it wasn't a deliberate decision to to do that to, to go back into that. It just happened by sheer chance. I was talking to somebody the other day, explaining what happened. I was in the icon gallery in, in Birmingham and I bumped into my former tutor. This is this is quite some years ago. My former tutor, Trevor Denning, who's um a kind of you know well-known pop artist painter, um, who I got on with really, really well. And you know, he, he kind of taught me a lot about self-criticism and stuff. But he took an interest and and you know it was it was nice if he remembered who I was, but he'd also remembered what I'd done and said, you know, I think it was just before we said goodbye, he said you should, you should do some more very thin stuff. And Without consciously thinking about it, it, it started kind of rattling around somewhere at the back of my mind and I started writing songs. Um, and so it happened almost in a 
you know, uh, automatic kind of way. And yeah, uh, I did it with a, um, yeah, a big bag full of songs that we, we recorded, yeah. have recorded over the past few years. Is it more in keeping with the early phase of the band or the, the latter part, or is it a, yes, how does it, yes, which, which hat have you got on for that? I think very much in visual terms. And I, th- I think if you drew, drew a line between the first album and Motortown and then projected it out, that's where this stuff would be. So I would, I would like to think it's kind of got some of the sophistication of, of Motortown, but some of the edge of, of the Bush's screen. Excellent. So it's, it's got elements from, from, from both of those. This is going to be very exciting, isn't it? God, I hope must... so. Well, you know, <laughs> as, as Brian Eno said when he was working with Bowie on his low, he said, don't worry, no one's going to die, whatever happens, you know, and... That is true, isn't it? You it's important ask. to remember that, isn't it? It is. It really is important to remember that. Several points I've thought, no, I need to listen to it again. We need to kind of remix it or do those those parts again. And yeah, I've kind of gone the whole nine yards with it. I've gone, gone as far as I can with it. Uh, and uh, I'm quietly pleased with it. I'm quietly proud of it. I don't want to overcook it or... Um, no, no, but... Um, sort it's... of create too much expectation, but I am very pleased with it. Yes, well, you must you must enjoy seeing, you know. I mean, it's always great hearing new bands, and it's brilliant when you hear some raw young talent. I just think that's fantastic. But I've also enjoyed, you know, kind of still hearing you know bands who've just got back together and went, well, not the original lineup, but sometimes variations, and it just made a sound, and they just really enjoyed it and said, yeah, it's great fun, and um, yes. Well, and I don't have it's 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 yeah, just just really really wonderful mate for, for me. I, I did most of the vocals uh, on the first two Cravats albums, and I, th- I think that the the, the maybe is a because you know I don't speak to people. I think there's maybe a misconception that that you know it's that Shen sang those, and most of it is me actually. Um, and then when when we did the very things, when we started the very things. You know, it was a kind of deliberate move to make Shen the front man because I just wanted to do the creative stuff. I actually. You know, didn't want to be kind of the front person yeah. anymore. Um, and this is an opportunity to get that back. And it sounds a bit immodest, but I always liked my voice on on the cravat stuff. And it's it's nice. It was nice to get back to that. It took a while. It took a, you know a few years to kind of get it back. But I, I was kind of delighted. You know what what we were able to do. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting because I also did. Was it Simon from and also the trees? I mean, they're still got projects and there's still loads of work coming out and i just i just think it's a kind of a bit of an amazing time at the moment i think everyone's just wanting to put something together and release something again and um i think you're right it is post it's kind of post pandemic isn't it is that that's still all that i know that's for a lot of people that's that's quite a long time ago now and it's all it's all kind of in the past but it's taken me and a lot of people i know you know a long time to get back into this into the swing of things um, and part of it is just what you say, I think, about, you know, bands playing live and, you know, meeting up and, and messing about and doing stuff again. Uh, it did put pay to all that, didn't it, for a, for, for a long while? Yes. I did, um, was it Alexander Hack or Hacky, who was in, in, in I can't pronounce that German band, Fuck, you know, you know <laughs> the one with, um, oh God, Blitzer and all those yeah. guys from Berlin. yeah. 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 And he and him and his partner have got a new album out, and he and they said they they would rather just rent studio spaces to live and work in rather than own a house because they'd rather put all their life into making art and work rather than worrying about 
owning a home and I think that's amazing I wouldn't yeah. go that far myself but um, <laughs> I think it's great that people have still got that amazing ability to to put so much into what they're doing and so much belief and put themselves still on the line at the you know probably in the mid to late 60s you know because I think that's what everyone wants to do like you, you're right you're absolutely dead right it's really important to do that because um I think because of the way that technology is as, as well that's that's it's very tempting you know to kind of to do it in that kind of um very controlled um you know um yeah pedestrian way maybe you know to, to record in that way and yeah I've, 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 I've so much time you know for people who do put themselves on the line and yeah do difficult stuff yeah it's great that's really i hadn't heard about them actually doing that but that, that's really really impressive it's no scary. i couldn't do it either my no. uh, would, uh, yeah not too much actually but it's interesting <laughs> but it is interesting the you know but things being unearthed from that period because there was an amazing film on a, a band who only lasted eight months and released one ep called rima rima and yeah um, i remember them yeah, yeah and 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 somebody decided to make a film about them which was quite amazing they were the first band on 4ad records yeah and then it's it's this most fascinating film about this band who only lasted eight months yeah had dorothy max Pryor. Gary Asquith, Marco Peroni, and various other people who went into 4AD bands. And, you know, again, people created such unusual and interesting music. It was just a it was just an amazing time. So um yeah, it's very, it's it's very inspirational. I think creativity is the only thing that we've got, really, isn't it? So you're absolutely right. Absolutely, to keep absolutely using right. it. I'd forgotten that Marco Peroni was involved in that. He uh was using one of the programming studios when we were working on on the very thing stuff. So uh, to see him regularly, uh, regularly down there. Was he in Adamant at the time? Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he yeah. worked actually with Sinead O'Connor on her first album. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. He's, a, he's a good guy. He's a Amazing. Guy. So if you were able to whisper something to your sixteen-year-old self, a little bit of word, a word of wisdom, is there anything in particular that you'd have thought, oh, that would have been a good thing to know? when I was 16, even if you ignored it. Yeah, I would say stop worrying about the future. Just, yeah, just, just uh, get on with it. It'll all be okay. Stop it will worrying. be all right. Even the 80s, yeah. which was a bit grim, it will be it, fine. It was grim, but yeah, it was at a time, I think, when I was, I was kind of really physically fit. I was working on building sites. And so it really did feel like being a, a warrior. I'm not <laughs> a, you know, a violent or a macho person in any way at all, really, but it felt like a, I could, we could tackle anything. And and sometimes you know we had to we we did get in lots of scrapes you know at gigs um so yeah it was it was it but didn't it didn't bother me it didn't kind of get to me mentally at the time and uh and yeah so happily we survived it yes well i'm so excited with both silver lake which is yeah i was interested because i thought god this is a very different vibe it's got that dance vibe but now it all makes sense yeah from your yeah. clubbing period. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Right. Her vocals and, and you know, the production. Oh, well, it's interesting that Silver Lake stuff is kind of has veered back because the, the first album is is kind of um, 90s, noughties dance music. It's, it's got a lot of sounds in it that I kind of recognise as being very much from that era. And that's as it should be, you know. Um, but the second on the album that we're working on now, which will also be out next year, um, I think I've been influenced by my work on the very thing stuff. So there's a a, 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 a bit more than uh, a little, um, yeah, kind of indie uh, influence. In yes. So was the so you've done lots of EPs. Is it Jim Rockford Smile is the album? Jim Rockford Smile is the album. That's the second album. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's I think that's probably um, 
Yeah, probably come more representative of where we are now as well. Right. And the first album was Paradise Place. Paradise Place, yeah, that's right. Right, I've got you. God. Actually, they're both lockdown albums, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. God. <laughs> I'll have to yeah, I've been listening to Jim Rockford. Obviously, we love the oh, Rockford. That's nice. Oh, yeah. Nice. It's good. Oh, so when I when I put this out, I'll um I'll put the link to your bandcamp page and um yes. Yes, and people can access it like that as well. But I, Great. you know, but look, Robin, thank you ever so much for the, your time. It's been amazing, and it's, um, it's been a pleasure yeah. to do, David. Absolute pleasure to do, and I'm, I'm so um, flattered, you know, that you would ask. <laughs> oh, people love people bizarrely really love the when they see the kind of people I've had. They go, my God, that's so amazing and so curious who they are. Because mostly, I mean, when I started doing this five or six years ago. There wasn't that much interest in the 80s scene. And now, I mean, there was two books on goth rock this year, yeah. you know, which was amazing. Yeah. And and did you read the Shen's book, by the way, that he no. brought out? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> did you? I've got the PDF of it, which is not, not quite the same as having the book. And okay. um, I, I, I must admit, having PDFs don't really help reading things, actually. I find it hard. I don't like you know, reading books on screen. It's no, like, that that's absolutely it. It's just like, if I, you know, I don't like, you know, I like the physical thing. So I've I've just scrolled up and down a bit and went, oh, that's interesting. But yeah. I haven't. But I know that the very things is just like compressed to like one paragraph almost from. Yeah from memory of it and but the yeah. the photographs are very evocative and i think for that reason you know i've i've enjoyed it but no it's interesting that goth which i, I remember at the time being rather looked down upon as some sort of poor relative has now become with kathy unsworth and also rob john rob has thus become this kind of wow yes we all love goth which keeps making me think no we didn't we hated goth rock sure you absolutely you're right it's kind of revisionism it's really interesting isn't it Really interesting. I, I, I loved a lot of it at the time, and and, and still do. Yes, but, I mean, I have to say, when I used to watch the two, the audience looked pretty dead until the mission were on and all the Smiths, and it was absolutely rocking. But yeah. most of the time, they just looked completely bored. What was it like with the very things? Were there, was there much of an atmosphere? No, there wasn't. It was really sterile. It was really, really hard to kind of GSLs up to um to to, to perform, and it must be. Yeah, as you suggested, it's probably the same for other bands as well, I would have thought, if you're not yeah. the Smiths. Uh, uh, or, or Wayne Hussey. Of and, and, and I remember they went mental. But I do, um, yeah, and I suppose they were just spoiled rotten, weren't they? They had all this entertainment every week, and I don't think they appreciated it. No, I think you're right. No. But the, yeah. um, who do we do with? They used to do two bands at a time. The Voice of the Beehive with the uh, the other band on um, in the same studio. And, and, yeah, it was the same for them. It's just kind of a lack of interest, you know. It was a real odd. Yeah, he, but it was a great was, show. It was a really brilliant show. We were very lucky to. Be there. Well, someone's put up on YouTube, I think, all all of the shows, and I started flicking through it one one Christmas when I was probably having a bit too much time to just fiddle around, and it was just bonkers. It was just like, my God, just the most random thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you, you, what, you, you, you got it absolutely right earlier on when you were saying that whatever it was, two or three hours to fill. That's a lot of time. Weekly. That's a lot of airtime weekly to fill with stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and so you know we remember those classic things, or whatever they're called. But it's all the really strange things that they just went. Oh, this week we're going to do some really obscure soul program, and you know, oh my god, they were on it, and oh well, I hadn't. You know, it's it's almost worth it because it's like an archaeological dig, and you're thinking, oh wow, that's quite amazing. <laughs> some real a lot of ranting poets, you know. So. Yeah. 
and you then always and Maggie Clark was often on it with um, yes letters of Bresner. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, God, um, I'd forgotten that. We we uh, caught them at just the right time when there was there seemed to be money sloshing about, and they threw kind of money our way happily. Um, but um, I was able to. I don't know if you remember seeing it, but Max Headroom did the intro to our film. Uh, and that only came about because uh, Matt Frewer, uh, Max Headroom actor, was recording a lot of links for the tube um, the night that, before we, we did our filming for the Bushy Scream. And I was in Newcastle. Um, and uh, Chris Phipps, the commissioner for, for the tube, said to me, do you want, do you want him to, to, if you want him to introduce a film, he can, but you need to script it. So, uh, oh, okay, <laughs> okay. And all the other guys are going out to the pub, and I stayed in and scripted his his intro, the one that he delivers before the wow. Before the film. So, but I, it's yeah, I was just so lucky to be able to do that. I'm sure now. I'm thinking it was. They said it was twenty thousand pound, didn't they? That video. I, I don't know. It was. It was. It was a lot of money. Gavin Taylor um, directed it, who'd done uh, U two at Red Rocks before. Before right. That. Oh. So he was. He was kind of a bit of a name, and it was all shot on film. So, uh, yeah, and they only had limited, limited stock. So um, there's a bit uh, at home Priory when Shenzhou was vocals and he, right at the end of the tune, he turns around, you can see he trips on his cape. Under normal circumstances, we would have reshot it. We couldn't because that was all the film stock we had. That was the <laughs> last bit of 16 millimeter film going through the camera. Excellent. Yes, I'll have to watch it now. <clears throat> Look, Robin, <laughs> thank you ever so much, and I'll I'll keep in touch. But looking forward to your new material. Thanks, David. Yeah, I'll let you know what it's at. It's so yes. nice to speak to you. I'll keep in touch. Please Thanks do. A lot. Have a lovely evening. And you take care. Bye bye. Bye. And that, the listener, as you can gather, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Robin Dalloway for giving me the time for that interview. As I mentioned or he mentioned throughout that interview, um, as you just heard it, so you'll know. One-time member of the Cravats, also the very things. How exciting is that news? And uh, do check out the work he's doing at the moment with Silver Lake on Bandcamp. There you go. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's true. Anyway, all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, um, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.